What's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini, and they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Hi, and welcome back to our latest installment of the Legal Face-Off podcast on WGN Radio. I'm Joe Brand, and as always, we're joined by our guest, Rich Lenkov of Bryce Downey and Lenkov. Rich, how are you doing today? Good, Joe. Good to see you. Good to see the mustache is uh, coming along well. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm trying to, to fully become the next Rich Lenkov. We'll see what happens next week, maybe. Uh, and as always, joined by Tina Martini of McDermott, Will & Emery. Tina, how are you? Great. How are you doing? Doing great. Doing great. We start today's show with the topic of Illinois college athletes possibly starting to profit off their name, image, and likeness due to a new bill. One of those people supporting the bill is Representative Cam Buckner of the 26th District. He's also a former Fighting Illini defensive end of the football team. Representative, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you all for having me. Good afternoon. So, Representative, last week, the Illinois legislature passed a bill that would allow college athletes to profit from their name, image, and likeness. It's called NIL legislation. It passed with overwhelming bipartisan support and is now on Governor Pritzker's desk. You and Napoleon Harris, who is an Illinois senator, Northwestern alum, and former NFL player, you both co-sponsored the bill. Can you fill us in on the specifics? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for, for teeing it up like that, uh, Tina. So um, the it's called the, the Illinois Student Athlete Endorsement Rights Act. It's, it's a mouthful, um, uh, but it's because it's a big bill and it's extremely, I think, necessary. Um, folks are asking, so what is this about? Um, you know, this, this is about the legal tenant that we call uh, right of publicity. Uh, this is about agency. Uh, this is about autonomy. This is about the fair market. But essentially, this is about fairness for our young student athletes. And what it will do is give them the right to earn um, market value, fair fair market value compensation uh, for use of their name, their likeness, and their image. And that's something that was previously prohibited by both state law and by the NCAA. Uh, and so this really is a, a step in the right direction to, to give these young folks some control over their image and, and you know how they compensate from it. There's about 15 state laws on the books already. There's talk about a uh, federal equivalent. Um, why is it so important now more than ever? You talk about uh, equity and fairness. Why is it now well, so important now more than ever to give college athletes the ability to earn money? What about you know today's society, especially in light of um, the fight for justice, makes you think now is the right time to pass this kind of legislation? But Rich, it, it was the right time to do this was was years ago. Um, however, now we're up against a deadline because the state of California was intrepid. Uh, they were bold and they passed legislation a year and a half ago that would make this legal in the state of California starting July 1st of this year. Uh, what happened after that was many states began to play catch up. Uh, this bill in, in its current form, uh, we, we, you know, we got the buy-in from the state institutions. Uh, we got the buy-in from folks who, um, you know, are, are external stakeholders, uh, but it is, uh, it's very similar to a bill that uh, I was a co-sponsor on two years ago that was led by, at that point, Representative Chris Welch before he was Speaker. Um, and we were, we were told that it's not time yet. Uh, however, um, this is now a, a, 
uh, situation where competition is at the heart of this. And we know that states around the country are scrambling to get this done before July 1st because what's going to happen is that they're going to lose, lose out on recruits when recruits see that, you know, Alabama or Florida, California allow this, but places like Indiana or Ohio or Michigan don't. So on the federal level, um, as Rich mentioned, there really isn't a federal law as of yet. Um, Democratic Senator Chris Murphy introduced legislation a number of months ago, um, which would essentially federalize the NIL law. And the NCAA has also been working on developing its own rules, which would be more restrictive than what Senator Murphy is proposing. Why has there been so much difficulty on a federal level to get this passed? And how likely is it, do you think, that ultimately we will see a federal law that um, really institutionalizes the whole notion of, of name, image, and likeness protection for athletes? Yeah, Tina, I'm, I'm flipping a, a little bit because my, my real angst in, in, in that category is with the NCAA and not with the federal government. Uh, I actually think that uh, we should not, at the state level, have had to, to put these laws into play. I think that the federal government should not be charged with that either. I think the NCAA should regulate and police the work that they do. However, they've been recalcitrant. They've, they've drugged their feet on, on this and they refuse to do anything. Uh, when what we what we what we've seen in the history of the NCAA is when it comes time for them to make money, they act very quickly. Um, now we're talking about someone else making money, and they they throw their hands up and say, "Hey, we don't know. We're gonna." It's equivalent. If you want anything to die, just say, oh, "Let's wait for Congress to do it," right? <laughs> Which is what they've done. Uh, and I, I I worked in Congress for a while, and, I'm, and I have I, I respect the question delegation, but we know that it's not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, and so the NCAA has has really been. Um, I think a bad actor, you know, this, and they've kind of feigned that, that they just don't want to touch it. Um, but they, what they have said is that if states, you know, move in the, this direction, that they will not um, be impediments to the work that we do on the state level. So, I mean, that, that, that is something that's, um gives me some optimism, uh, but I don't, I don't see that the federal government or, or, or the U.S. Congress will, will pass this anytime soon. Representative, so to that point, you know, the NCAA's answer to these types of, uh, Legislative moves traditionally have been, well, you know, that would make uh, going to college a money-making enterprise for athletes that you are professionalizing student athletes who are there you know, to compete on an amateur level, that they are being compensated by getting you know, free tuition, scholarships, room board. How do you answer that kind of criticism to your legislation? Yeah, I, I, I think that that, that argument, and I've heard it a lot, obviously, is a little bit convoluted, right? Because we are not even talking about compensating athletes for what they do on the field, on the court, on the track, on the soccer pitch. Um, we are simply asking to, to give them the right that every other similarly situated person has, right? If you are in the Martian Illini band uh, and you play tuba and you want to give tuba lessons in the summertime, or if you want to, you know, drop a tuba mixtape, I don't know what what people do, right? Um, you can do that. You can make money off of it. If you're, um, you know, a, a biochemistry major, you're able to do whatever it is that, that, that you want to do to make money off your name, likeness, image, even if you're on scholarship. But if you are the third string long snapper at Northwestern on scholarship, you can't do that. Uh, and, and so uh, this is really about fairness once again and bringing everybody to the equal playing field. I also will say that, you know, at some point we do have to address um, whether or not student athletes are paid for their performance. Uh, and I, I know there are folks in the past who have, who have called NCAA scholarships slavery. I, I won't go that far. I think that that's 
much too provocative of a way to look at it. But I do think that it's very akin to indentured servitude, right? When folks say, we're paying for you to go to school, so therefore you can do nothing else unless you let us know, unless you come by us first. Um, we, 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 we belong to us at that point. I think when we, when we look at this, this is not the NCAA that was created in the 1800s. This is not, you know, Amos Lazo Staggs, University of Chicago football team. Um, this is a $1.5 billion a year industry that identifies as a, as a nonprofit entity, which it's not. Um, so we've got to look at the, the, these dollars, these TV contracts, these merchandise contracts, and, and have a real conversation. And I would hope that those people who um, uh, carry themselves to be fair market capitalists would look at this, this from that standpoint as well. I was maybe going to say the proper name for calling a tuba player is a tubist, but that doesn't sound right. <laughs> I think I think you were right with tuba player. Uh, real quick, <laughs> Representative, what do you think about the new head coach, Brett Bielma? Any chance this this program can move to where it was when you were on the team? Yeah, I'm, I'm extremely excited about Coach Bielema and, and the, the swagger that he's brought to Champaign. Uh, I've, I've talked to some folks who spent some time in, in, the, in the building and in the facility, uh, and this seems to be a new kind of era. Uh, era aura and, and ethos uh, there. And so he, he to me, seems like a, a player's coach. Um, and while I was a huge fan of, of Coach Smith, I know that, you know, it was time to move on. And so I'm excited about Illinois football moving forward. Illinois basketball showed us what can happen. Uh, and, you know, I'm just, my fingers are crossed and I'm always rooting for the lineup. Sounds great. Representative, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you all. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Continuing on the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio, tens of thousands of Alexa users are claiming that Amazon has been recording them, and Keller Lankner is representing almost all of them. Joined with us today is their managing partner, Travis Lankner, who's also a legal analyst and former clerk to Justice Kennedy on the Supreme Court and Justice Brett Kavanaugh before he was on the Supreme Court. Travis, thanks so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you. Yeah, Travis, welcome back to the show. So it's really interesting because, you know, how many of us actually read the terms of service when we, you know, sign up for Amazon or any other app? Well, if you checked off the yes box on Amazon, you maybe unwittingly agreed that any disputes that you have with Amazon will go to arbitration. Well, you represent, as Joe mentioned, about 75,000 claimants who checked off that box, who had disputes with Amazon, and who filed arbitration cases against Amazon. Well, the news now is that as of just recently, last month, Amazon decided to put forth new terms of service. 
Now, if you do have a dispute with Amazon after I think it was May 3rd, you no longer have to go through arbitration. You can now sue them locally in King County, Washington, where Amazon is headquartered. So being the lead lawyer for so many of these claimants, how do you feel about this change? Well, it's uh, it's remarkable, uh, a, a word that can have a variety of meanings, but it's, it's worthy of remark. It, it's notable that um, a company, one of the largest companies of the world in the world, would, after having uh, used arbitration and relied on arbitration for so many years, uh, in part to get out of facing class actions from customers, third-party sellers, and others, it, it is remarkable that when actually faced with people who want to bring uh, disputes against it at any scale, uh, the company would would turn tail and, and run back to court. So we're we're assessing what that change means. But in the meantime, as you mentioned, we have uh, uh, tens of thousands of clients who have demanded arbitration against Amazon, and those are moving forward. Yeah, it's really interesting when you think about the logic behind it. Uh, they are being faced, obviously, with tens of millions of dollars in filing fees associated with arbitration. And obviously, they've done the math and think that those the costs of those filing fees are less than the exposure that they'll face in a civil court. But you know, one case obviously can eat up, you know, a ton of that. So it's, uh, listen, obviously they're smarter people than me making that uh, determination, but it's interesting that they're willing to take the risk of trial. To your point, the reason companies don't expose themselves to trial is because in most jurisdictions, you know, there is unlimited damages available. There are, of course, you know, some limitations in some places, but Amazon is exposing themselves to tens of millions of dollars of potential liability if you and your clients are, you know, found, uh, if they're found liable. Well, the filing fees are one part of the broader picture uh, that I think is what Amazon was facing here and what other companies that we've been adverse to uh, face, which is that it's often surprising to defendants when they're in this situation that uh, the the group hosting or providing the arbitrations, in this case, AAA, the American Arbitration Association, will move forward with all of those cases simultaneously. It's an extreme burden on uh, a defendant, and, and that's separate and apart from the filing fees issue. And in many uh, situations, if a defendant loses even a few of those matters, which uh, it will, Right. I mean, at, at the types of numbers we're talking about, uh, it'd be very difficult to go undefeated. And we, of course, believe vigorously in the merits of our clients' claims. But the even a few wins against a company like that start to put it on its heels. Uh, those wins can be publicly recorded in court so that any arbitration awards can be enforced. And all of a sudden, uh, a company could just be in litigation for decades over a particular kind of claim, whereas a class action Yes, it has exposure attached to it, but it also offers a lot of efficiency benefits. And of course, that's why the class action device was invented in the first place. And and in Amazon and other companies like it, if they follow suit, I think we see those companies saying, it turns out those efficiency benefits were more powerful than they might have thought. So, Travis, explain the the lawsuit, if you can, briefly, or maybe the two lawsuits, because I know there's two main tracks. One is you're representing customers who are alleging that Amazon improperly collected voice recordings. And then there's a second class of your clients who are minors, who are, and you're alleging that Amazon breached wiretapping laws with regards to those people. Could you explain the two lawsuits and the two theories? 
Sure. So the the state laws at issue in both of the uh, types of cases you described are the same. Uh, these are these are laws that are on the books in several states that require the consent of both parties before someone can uh, record a conversation in certain settings. Um, and, and so we've alleged in uh, the cases that we have on behalf of our clients that the recordings made by Amazon's Alexa devices are unlawful under those states' laws. Amazon, every time you interact with an Alexa device, actually makes a recording of that interaction, stores it, analyzes it, and uses it for its own business purposes. That recording isn't necessary to make Alexa work. Amazon has made a conscious choice to do that. It wants to make uh, voice prints of you so that it can identify you in the future when you do other when you uh, perform other functions using Alexa or otherwise. And it's just part of uh, a privacy intrusion that a, a massive company like Amazon can use to its advantage. By way of comparison, the Siri technology through Apple does not make a recording. And so Amazon could have uh, designed Alexa or made Alexa operate not to need to actually make and store that recording, but it, it chose the other path. And we say that that's unlawful uh, under several states' laws. So then, as you said, we have different kinds of cases. Um, we represent a class of minors, children, who were recorded uh, allegedly unlawfully. And then we also represent uh, the, the many arbitration clients we have who are adults, who are Alexa users, and who signed Amazon's terms of service that had the arbitration clause. And so that's why they are in arbitration as opposed to court. Travis, last question on legal face-off, and I know we didn't prepare you for this, changing gears a little bit. I know you're a legal analyst uh, for a lot of different outlets, and you frequently talk about Supreme Court cases having been a former clerk um, to two Supreme Court justices. Uh, the upcoming term, or the, the current term, is going to end with a flourish of, of cases. Any thoughts, any comments? What are you really looking for um, out of this uh, this court? Well, it's always June. Uh, the court uh, because these cases take more time internally, but it always feels like it just builds to this climax at the end of every Supreme Court term. And that's always the end of June. So here we are. Uh, I think one of the big cases uh, that will be coming out in the next few weeks that people will be reporting on relates to uh, religious freedom. It's a it's a case involving a, a foster care uh, agency in Pennsylvania and whether that agency, which is a, a has a religious affiliation, can make certain choices um, based on its religious beliefs. There's now a, uh, a significant uh, shift on the court over the last several years toward viewing these religious freedom cases and um, placing a thumb on the scale of, of free exercise of religion and allowing entities like this foster care uh, group to, uh, to practice their religion and to make decisions that otherwise would be restricted by federal law to align with their religious beliefs. So that's coming out of the next few weeks. That's a big case. And then, of course, lots of uh, significant cases already on the books for the next term. So it, it never uh, stops. I got to ask you, how stressful was it when you were a clerk, when you know that June's coming around, knowing that everyone is waiting for these big, exciting cases? It's got to be a difficult time. And then my second question is, what's that last day like? How big is that? you know, happy hour afterwards. Yeah, there's there's a big happy hour. Uh, and, and it really is just building like a mountain to to that final part of the year. And as a clerk, you're only there for one year. So, you know, when you start in July, that really everything you're doing in many respects is 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 in preparation for and as part of the journey toward the end of June. But then 
what's funny is the justices who know this rhythm very well, it's they organize their lives around it, obviously. And there's that big last day in June. And by pretty much the next day, they're gone. Uh, the clerks are still there wrapping things up, but they know when to leave. They're off to their summer plans. And uh, once the opinions are out, they're out of the building and and they they take their time. So, But it's, it's always an interesting time of year. And it's these last few weeks of June where we really see the big opinions come down. Travis, thanks so much. Great insight. I, I love the printer in the background. I think it's a little lonely, though. You need to put some more flair on those. I know. I, if I if I'm subject to Room Raider, it's 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 a low score situation. We got to work on some books. So ne- I I promise by next time uh, we'll 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 get it filled out. Okay, we'll hold you to that. Thanks so much, Travis. Thank you, guys. Take care. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Moving on to the Legal Face-Off podcast on WGN Radio, and we move to the news that hit the tennis and sports world last week of Naomi Osaka dropping out of the French Open. With that, we bring in an employment lawyer and capital member of Bryce Downey and Lenkoff Stores, W. Downey. Stores, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Joe. Glad to be here. So, Storrs, uh, Osaka bowed out of the tournament, alleging that she cannot deal with the mental stress attendant to dealing with the media. Of course, dealing with the media is part of the responsibilities of any professional athlete. So, tell us from an employment law perspective, can an employer fire or even not hire an employee uh, because of a mental health condition or a disability who declines to do certain job-related activities that are essential functions to the job, like speaking to the media for a pro tennis player. Well, you already gave my answer in the question, but let me uh, let me get back to you on it. First of all, we, we need to recognize that uh, mental health conditions, mental health disabilities, to varying degrees, still are a stigma in our society. Less than they have been in the past, people are more willing to be open about their depression, their anxiety, uh, many other mental health challenges they might face. But it still is something people are not as comfortable talking about or able to recognize to the same degree they can physical conditions. The law with mental health conditions, mental health disabilities in particular, is the same as it is with physical conditions. And that is we look to the Americans with Disabilities Act in particular. And it provides that if someone has a recognized, known, or perceived mental health disability, which in some way impacts them from undergoing or being involved in a major life activity, if they can't perform an essential function of that job, and you first have to identify, is a task essential or not? In the case of Osaka, although she was, uh, she's an independent contractor, she's not an, an employee, uh, an essential aspect of her being on the tennis tour is giving interviews, talking to the press. 
but let's take that in the context of the workforce, uh, an employer employee. So let's say similarly that I am a, as part of my job, I have to do public speaking. That is an essential function of the job I was hired to do. But I get stage fright, or maybe I get to the point where I have panic attacks. Well, if that's essential to my job and the employer cannot accommodate that by having a second speaker or a substitute speaker, um, and or that causes undue hardship to the employer to have someone step in and undertake that job function or job role. In that instance, the employer might be allowed to terminate without legal repercussions or not hire the person. But I caution every employer, you need to go through a very extensive process with that and go into a deep dive to confirm that there's no way that you can accommodate a certain job function or substitute out that job function for something else the person does. So stores, how are the challenges that employers face when dealing with an employee's mental health condition? How are those challenges different than dealing with a physical disability? Good question. Most of us have had one or more physical maladies in our our lifetime and perhaps some type of physical disability, a bad back, a stiff neck, something that most people in the general public have experienced and you can observe it with your own eyes or your own ears. You can, it's apparent. Or when someone says, I have a herniated disc. Oh, I know about that. I know this athlete that had that. Mental health conditions so many times are hidden from view. Someone may be having severe depression, anxiety. They might be bipolar and to to anyone who doesn't have a background in psychiatry, psychology, medicine, or have experience in dealing with someone with a mental health condition, they may be totally unaware of that condition. So the first thing is being able to spot, recognize, or learn about as an employer. Learn about well what what is the what it, what are the components of this person's bipolar condition. Then it's being able to deal with and accommodate that individual who maybe has a mental health disability. What about an employee who's working as a clerk and blurts out insulting statements to customers? Well, can the does the employer have to stand by and just allow that to happen? No. What can the employer do in that instance? The, the gut reaction might be, the knee-jerk reaction might be, I'm just going to fire them. They can't say those things. The better course of action would be to first see, can they be trained, supervised, instructed, so that they don't make inappropriate comments. They don't act in a way that is overly disturbing to the general public. It might be that they have to switch them to a different job role that is available at the company, um, one where they're not necessarily dealing with the general public. But again, I also caution all employers in that regard. Um, you can't simply pull someone off the job. You have to go through an interactive process with that. So it is very challenging when dealing with mental health conditions, much more than it can be with physical injuries. Do you right. get, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I just want to move on to the, the German Open because she announced yesterday, Osaka, that, by the way, Osaka is the highest paid 
female athlete of all time, right? So the stakes here are pretty high. She announced yesterday that she's withdrawing from the German Open as well, citing mental health issues. My question to you is, let's assume there was an employer-employee relationship at play here, um, and she kept it private, right? She's been very vocal and public about the reasons why she pulled up. But let's assume for a second that she didn't disclose it and went to her employer in private and said, I don't want to participate in media or this tournament because of my mental health problem. And somehow that got that got leaked, that got word, you know, word from that meeting got out. What are some perils that an employer can face in that kind of situation where the employee doesn't voluntarily disclose their condition like Osaka did here? Right. Well, one one situation would be a privacy violation, a HIPAA violation. An employer is not allowed to disclose to the general public or for that matter to co-employees an individual's uh, disclosed mental health disability or condition. You can't go to Charlie at the punch press line and say, hey, you know, uh, Fred over there is psychotic. Just keep an eye out for him. But there's a balancing test with that. What if that person not only is psychotic, but might be dangerous either to himself or fellow employees? Uh, we had such an instance recently with a, a client where the individual uh, was acting in a not just disruptive matter, but a potentially violent matter. Um, fortunately, in that instance, it was co-employees that brought it to the attention of management. But there are the challenges with privacy violations. What can you disclose? And then there's a challenge with how do you treat? How do you work with that employee? Again, you need to go through the interactive process. Can we accommodate them? How important is this job? Stores, how do you recommend clients of yours and potential clients? How do you recommend they broach the topic? Like if they suspect, for example, that someone has a mental health issue, um, but haven't gotten any indication either necessarily through something very overt in terms of behavior or through disclosure, how do you recommend folks approach it? Clearly, it's a very delicate situation, but that initial assessment and trying to map out a roadmap can be really tricky. How do you recommend folks go about doing that? You know, there, there's not an easy answer to that because, again, one's mental health condition is one of the most private things that, frankly, most individuals really do not want to disclose to the general public, let alone to their employer who they might fear would fire them. But if someone is acting in a bizarre manner, a just very uh, unusual behavior or disruptive behavior, the first thing would be for the HR manager or whoever it is that handles the HR issues to pull that employee aside. Don't make a scene about it, but Go into a private setting and talk to them and ask them, are, are you having some problems? Are you having some issues? We noticed or we heard or we observed that you are, um, no, you're screaming at the top of your lungs. You're banging on the bathroom door. Um, something's going on here. Um, can we get you some help? And not all, but many employers have employer assistance programs, EAP programs, where the employee can confidentially, in a confidential manner, be sent to or sign up for and get to treatment there. Um, Sometimes it's, can we talk to your, if the person's married, can we talk to your spouse or to your parents um, to try to find out what is going on? But an employee is not required to disclose their, what condition they have. An employee really may not want to say I'm schizophrenic uh, and I'm bipolar. Um, but if it's disruptive in the workforce, the employer can say, 
Either we're going to accommodate you, either you got to stop that, or we're going to accommodate you by moving you to a quieter spot or giving you a different task. If that can't be done, the employer can say, you can't continue working here unless you get some type of help. Either we can provide that for you, or you can go through group, your group policy or EAP. So his last question, uh, you and I have worked together now at our firm for almost 20 years, and you know we're now remote, but... Can I recover for PTSD for being in that office uh, with that junk behind you and all those boxes? And even now looking at it on Zoom, I'm having the heebie-jeebies. So my question is, how likely am I to recover personally against you for having a, as you know, I'm fairly meticulous in my office and not having a lot of stuff, but your office is just giving me the creeps. Well, I'll put it back at you. I I creep out when I see such a fastidious, clean uh, office. I uh-huh. need stuff around me, and I think I have a very therapeutic setting. I encourage you to come back later today, and I'll take you around and show my boxes. So maybe we have competing claims against each other. We may. Mm-hmm. We may. Very good. Thank you. We always recommend everyone to subscribe, like, and download the Legal Faceoff podcast wherever you get your podcast. But don't forget, you can watch on Facebook, and you can see the chaos behind everyone's heads on our welcomed guests here on the show. And also stores is dashing new glasses stores. Thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate it, Joe. Thank you, everyone. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. On to the legal grab bag here with the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. Two guests that we're looking forward to getting to today. Avi Sherman of the Skip and Josh podcast. You can find that at skipandjosh.com and just download, subscribe anywhere you find podcasts. Avi, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. Along with Gianna Carpenzano, who owns Rebel Lash Salon in Lakeview. You can go find more about that on that therebellash.com. Also, another podcast host, To Heal the Collective. Gianna, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We have to mention, though, we have to mention that Avi and I go back a little ways. Uh, I grew up in Montreal, as many of our watchers and listeners know. And last night uh, was a huge, huge night in our collective sports life because... The happy thought. The Habs won. They swept the Winnipeg Jets. They are on to the third round, Joe, of the uh, playoffs. 
They're the first team to make the final four uh, in hockey. Uh, they've got some time now to wait for the Vegas, Colorado winners, but uh, huge. And then Avi is wearing the cap of one of my beloved, my other beloved teams. Everyone knows that's the Expos, team I grew up watching. Avi and I were big Expos fans back in the day, and I'm hoping for the day that they come back. What are you, what are you saying on your show, uh, uh, Skip, about the uh, likelihood of the Expos returning to Montreal one day? Well, we talked about it so many times, <laughs> and I said 5%. I've been... I said five to 10% chance. Like I really still am skeptical until, you know, until it seems more, I got to hear more, you know, actual dollars figures being thrown around, but it's just, I think right now we're just like a bargaining chip for the other teams to get money from their cities. But for now it's all Canadians all the time. A lot of buzz in the city, Tina. So exciting stuff. We're going to start Joe with our first story about the central park. Karen, that uh, we talked about about a year ago, right? This is the woman, her name is what, Amy Cooper, and she was going after, uh, in a video that went viral immediately, she was going after an African-American bird watcher in Central Park who she said was, you know, intimidating her, attacking her. She called the police. Turns out this gentleman was just there uh, walking his dog, looking at birds, and, of course, it became a viral sensation. She was one of the many Karens that we've seen, um, you know, privileged uh, people going after uh, minorities. And, you know, got fired from her job. And that's where this new story kicks in. She, in a story that we like to call, Tina, um, where do they get the balls? She is now turning around and suing her employer for firing her. Right? They fired her in the wake of this viral video saying that, you know, what she did was despicable and doesn't represent the values of our firm. This is a what investment firm called Franklin Templeton in New York. And on Tuesday... She filed a lawsuit against them in Manhattan saying that you wrongfully terminated me. She alleged that they terminated her based on not the merits, but based on her gender and race. Now, remember, this is a white female uh, who is alleging that. Now, of course, you know, females are a protected class. And, you know, she does. She can be. You can meritoriously sue an employer on a gender discrimination basis if you're a female. But. What's she doing here, Tina? I mean, it's it's she's compounding one of the most despicable acts we've seen in a while by now going after her employer for what they should have done early, which is firing her. Yeah, I mean, this is pretty outrageous. I mean, one thing that really stuck out to me about this story was that she went after her former employer because they she claims that they said that they had done an investigation and that based on the results of that investigation, that they had made a determination that firing her was appropriate. I mean, just a couple of observations. I I mean, first of all, this is just, this whole thing is outrageous, as you said, Rich. Second of all, my guess is that it's employment at will. So they probably don't even need a reason to terminate her. Um, This whole notion of going after them because they claim to do an investigation that she doesn't think they did, which led to some level of defamation or tarnishing of, of her, of her reputation. I mean, she just doesn't seem to realize that her reputation is already in the toilet. So I, I just think it's frivolous at best. Yeah. I mean, we see this all the time. We see people trying to, you know, rehab themselves for the court system. And I, I think people sometimes don't realize the public perception of people like this, that do something incredibly stupid like she did. And then try to get money from it. Just take the L, move on with your life, go back to what will hopefully be for you a life of anonymity. Instead, she's just sort of picking up the scab that 
in New York City, of all places, is not going to serve her well. What are your thoughts on that? Avi? Sorry. I feel bad for, like, the real Karens. Like, what about people who are actually named Karen? Like, <laughs> like, they're so screwed. Like, it's so bad. Like, these people are just... You're right. Like, she should take the L. And, and so, like, I don't know why she's seeking more attention, right? Everybody forgot about her already. Now it's like, okay, bring it all back up. Right? Jana, any sympathy for Central Park Karen? Do you want to... Is there, is there something we're missing that she does have the right to... You know, go after her employer. What are your thoughts? Um, I would say definitely not. I think she's really trying to hang on to this victim card right now. Um, what I saw was the video of her with her dog and not seeming to be in any like immediate danger. She had enough time to like make the phone call, pick up her dog. She's like strangling her dog on his leash <laughs> and like just poor dog. Yeah, poor dog. If she really felt like she was in danger, she had plenty of time to get out of the situation. So I think she's just really, she's just being stubborn at this point. So that dog should sue Amy Cooper for having to put up with that racism for years. That poor dog is just in the park trying to hang out and look at birds. It's just a deal with this maniac. I was going to say it's ironic that she's suing for the company not properly investigating the incident because it seems like properly investigating is something she's not very good at in that type of situation. So now getting a little taste of reality, a little taste of justice. Um, Let's talk about tasting the rainbow and uh, taking a new term to that phrase. A popular candy company is suing a cannabis company because they feel their trademark name and logo, Tina, is being used and it's too confusingly similar. Yes. So for those of you out there who don't know me, I'm a trademark lawyer. So this is what I do for a living and have done for a living for 27 years. So, um, So this is a very interesting story. Last month, Mars Wrigley filed suit in Illinois, California, and Canada against a company called Turfogs, which um, decided to sell um, a variety of things, including um, candy products and related merchandising, all that have THC in them. And they decided to name their their, uh, merchandise Skittles. So it's Skittles, but substituting out um, a Z for an S. Um, and Mars Wrigley was pretty upset about it, upset enough that they filed suit last month claiming trademark and copyright infringement. Um, the concern here is ordinarily this would likely be a trademark claim that Mars Wrigley would bring because of the confusing similarity between each of the names, um, as well as the logo that's being used. And if you, I took a look at the packaging, very similar um, color, color concept and so forth. Um, but the exacerbating factor here for Mars Wrigley is the fact that these are t- THC-infused products. And um, allegedly, there have been children that have ingested these products and have become ill. So there's this other layer to this case that, um, that you know, t- takes a more serious tone than an ordinary trademark and copyright infringement claim would. But understandably, as we often see in these sorts of cases, Mars Wrigley is seeking not only for the company to stop selling this merchandise, but to also turn over whatever merchandise they have that bears the marks, as well as turning over their domain name, as well as shutting down their social media accounts. So my guess is that this is going to probably settle. I think the other side would be pretty foolish to let this go on much longer. 
And we must stipulate for the record, uh, Tina, they are delicious, that these Skittles are... You the know, Skittles or the Skittles? The Skittles. I mean, come on. Who doesn't love a, uh, uh, a THC-infused candy? Um, Have you but, ingested them, Rich? Well, I'm going to leave that to uh, <laughs> me and my counsel, Joe Brand. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's pretty uh, bold of this company to you know, name their product in a way that is going to confuse 99% of the world. Um, Gianna, what do you think of this? Is this uh, another example of a frivolous lawsuit? Or as a business owner yourself, what if someone came up with, you know, a mark or a sign that was incredibly similar to Rebel Lash? What would you do? I mean, I'm just going to say, I, I wonder about the quality of the product. I, I feel like, don't you usually come up with really good ideas when you're high? <laughs> <laughs> it's very not creative. And I don't know, as a business owner, I... I would, I would sue. I think kind of piggybacking off of all the hard work of Skittles and just copying near it, everything seems to be nearly identical. It's, it's kind of, yeah, it's not the most creative move in the world. It does seem like a 3 a.m., you know, a couple of bag of munchos in that you're, or, or Funyuns in that you're like, let's just add a, Z, a couple of Z's to the beginning and end, Avi. Normally, when you see these kind of things, I just normally sort of dismiss them because it's like it's more like, you know, copying someone, it's sort of like the, the biggest form of flattery. You know, it's like, OK, yeah, Skittles is the brand. Right. So it's the recognized thing. And, and normally Mars should just blow this off. Right. And they shouldn't even worry about it. But like Christina said, there's like a safety thing here. Right. This is candies. And if it's so similar to what kids are going to eat and and there's a chance they could get confused i think i think they have to try to get them to change the name the packaging whatever although seizing the candy that's uh, can they do that (laughs) yeah they absolutely can i mean that's one of the remedies that is is sought sometimes in these trademark infringement cases um it really sort of depends on the nature of the infringement and what the um, what the court finds, but it, it definitely, yes. If, if there is a finding that products bear an infringing logo or an infringing trademark, that is definitely something that, um, that, that is a remedy to seize the goods for destruction. So have you ever had a Smarty? You know what a Smarty is? Yeah, I've had a Smarty. Not the American, you know, version. It's all like the sugar can. The Smarties are a delicious Canadian confection. It's sort of similar to an M&M, but way better. So all this candy talk makes me think of some of the delicious candy that Avi has at his fingertips, yet we can't get here in the United States. Like Coffee Crisp. You ever have Coffee Crisp? Those are great. Canadian Kit Kat bars are the best. Much better than that. Terrible stuff you guys have down here. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Canada was well represented in the first two minutes of this segment of the podcast. We're just we're more to come and more. Maybe uh, you should move back to Canada, Rich. Yeah, you can <laughs> right out. Honestly, now I know why they called it rum chata and they didn't go with the original name, cinnamon toast crunk, because uh, th- that that makes a lot more sense now. Really? Speaking of drinks being thrown around. Rich, a Boston Celtics fan, is uh, continuing to find himself in some hot water, throwing a water bottle at current Nets guard and former Celtics guard Kyrie Irving. And I don't know, I would think that maybe this was going to be a Tina segment because, you know, conflict of, of interest possibly. But I guess I guess Rich is uh, the one organized you're, here. You're saying because my love of, uh, of the Celtics. Abby knows my love of the Celtics because it dates back 
forever. Avi and I grew up in Montreal where we would get our American channels back in the day. We got, you know, two Canadian channels and three American channels and they would stream them in. We would get them from like places like Plattsburgh, New York, Burlington, Vermont. And that they carried all the local Boston games because it was New England. So that's how we became Boston uh, uh, Celtics fans. But we hate every other Boston team. So. Uh, this guy, the white Garnett, right? He was a, a white guy wearing a Garnett shirt, tossed a bottle of Kyrie and got arrested as being charged. There's the other guy who walked on to the court during the Sixers game. There's another guy who I just read about who uh, jumped on the uh, pitch for a soccer game the other day. Um, we're seeing emboldened fan behavior more than ever, right? Traditionally, Joe, you're a sports guy. You call, I'm sure you've called your share of idiots running on the field and the best part of that, by the way, is the tackling, right? If you YouTube security tackling fans, it's some of the greatest stuff you'll see. But it seems like now fans are more emboldened. So good news is, from a legal perspective, they're being charged because, you know, we've seen examples of um, of people being attacked, right? I mean, there's a tennis player. Was it Monica Shellis that was attacked with a knife back in, you know, 30 years ago? So these things can be dangerous. I'm glad to see the authorities and more than ever, the teams are banning these people from, you know, forever. Um, but why is this happening more than ever, Tina? Do you think we're just in the society now because of social media where every idiot has an opinion and feels like they can express them? And maybe that's translating to expressing yourself in person too, despite the fact that you're facing off against seven foot, you know, people, which isn't the wisest thing to do. Well, you know, I think it's a confluence of things, Rich. Um, you did a great job teeing this up. I mean, a, a couple things. First of all, I think that these things do seem to be happening with greater frequency. Second, I get the sense um, that there's less of a tolerance for this type of behavior than maybe there was a few years ago. I think there's less of a likelihood of people sloughing this off as, oh, you know, this guy's just a whack job, but, you know, I'm just going to let it go and, you know, hopefully tomorrow's a better day. I just think there's less of that tolerance than maybe there used to be. Also, I am of the opinion that I think some people have sort of forgotten how to properly behave during COVID in these types of situations. I think that it may be a number of things. I think some people just don't know how to behave. Some people, I think, unfortunately, because of COVID, behaviorally, it has changed them. And um, we hear it all the time that people, for various reasons, being in isolation during COVID, that it's had um, a really difficult impact on people psychologically and emotionally. And so I think that some of these things may very well be happening with greater frequency because people are having a harder time filtering and 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 behaving appropriately. Well, I mean, last night, Abby, we saw in the wake of the Canadian sweep that I mentioned, their sweep of the Winnipeg Jets, in the wake of their sweep downtown Montreal, while there's only 2,500 uh, 2, people in the arena there was like, you know, tens of thousands of people outside and they tried to overturn a police car, which you and I remember harken back to the famous celebration back in the day where like downtown was just turned upside down. So do you think that some of this is COVID? I mean, you mentioned earlier that you found it a little uneasy that people were so close together in the celebration after being, you know, in COVID for the last 13 or 14 months. It's definitely what Christina said. It's like people forget how to act. That's part of it. What happens like in the, Kyrie and then the guy who jumped on the court in Philadelphia, like <laughs> there's alcohol. You can't, you can't discount the alcohol factor at sports games <laughs> and in arenas, right? That, that fuels it. Um, but like you said, 
1986, we were turning over cars here when we won when we won the Stanley Cup, <laughs> not, not when we lost, when we won, right? right. So, um, yeah, I mean, look, Kyrie has, there's a lot of bad blood. Like, the fans are really after him. Um, but obviously throwing a water bottle, I'm glad they arrested the guy. We're charging him, right? Yeah, Jenna, what's your talk? I mean, is, is this, should we let the fans be the fans? I mean, they're paying a lot of money, right, to get into an NBA game in the playoffs. It's going to cost you at least two, 200 bucks, 300 bucks. Should you be allowed to voice your opinion uh, to these fans? And shouldn't they have to take it? They're being paid $25 million. What's, you know, a water bottle that skims by your, your, your face? Is it really that big of a deal? I mean, I would say voicing your opinion is different than physically showing your opinion with a water bottle. Um, and you make the choice to go to these games. I feel like at the end of the day, there are rules that you have to follow and, and maybe etiquette. And these players are, you know, they're being paid to do a job. And I just think definitely not acceptable. Yeah, and of course, as we've covered, you know, many times on the show, you don't have a license legally to do whatever you want. If you ever read the back of that ticket, it limits your ability to sue the arena, the NHL, whatever. Um, it also says, you know, what they can come after you for. Joe, last uh, word on this topic. What's the most egregious example of fan behavior that you've seen in your many years of covering all sorts of different sports? I mean, it's not as bad uh, in King County, I assume. But I'm sure you've seen your share of drunken, rowdy fans. Yeah, uh, fortunately, the worst raucous crowd we deal with in, in Kane County Cougar games are uh, we're big beer snake places uh, because yeah. thir- Thursday's coming along now, $2 beers, $2 hot dogs, a nice little plug there. Uh, so as the game gets longer, the beer snakes get larger, and it almost looks like uh, a Chinese New Year, how they're holding it down the, the aisle with the stairs, and it's this whole celebration. It's very cool. I will say my favorite reaction of a professional athlete to a fan is Russell Westbrook from a couple years ago. After the show, you got to Google it. It's this big guy in a Sixers jersey and Russell Westbrook comes in, nice move, lays it in. And like, I don't even know if he butts into the guy or just comes close to him and he gives him the double bird and (laughs) just looks at him and he goes, what's up with this guy? (laughs) it's, It's the best reaction in the world. Now that's voicing your opinion, I, I guess, yeah, you're physically doing something too, but at least you're not throwing a water bottle at the guy. I think yeah, in this, I, prefer, I prefer when they tackle a guy, though, just put him to the ground. There's nothing yeah, better than when, when security takes over, of course. Yeah, but but I mean, throwing a water bottle at a player, I think they're kind of making an example of this guy, but I also think it's okay to do that because people can't just think that that's all right. Um, moving on, but staying over on the East Coast, a Brooklyn artist is claiming that the New York Police Department didn't check with property owners before painting over legal graffiti, Tina. Yes. So an artist who is Brooklyn-based named Caves um, has brought suit um, a class action, actually, on behalf of himself as well as other artists that are are in the same boat that he's in. He's a pretty well-known graffiti artist, and back in 2008, he had created a mural called Death from Above, which actually has gotten a lot of critical acclaim. It's been the subject of a number of books and TV shows um, and other media with regard to like, you know, I guess TV commercials and so forth have featured it. And so what happened is the New York Police Department has gotten a group of people together and they have been going around to different places in New York and they've been painting over graffiti. 
And what's unfortunate here is that, um, and I think there are a number of other similarly situated artists that um, there was no permission sought. And apparently the property owner and the tenant gave permission to caves to do this mural. And without any notice, uh, this mural was painted over and this has been publicized by the New York Police Department as an effort to beautify the city. Um, but it's unfortunate here because there are certain protections that are afforded artists, including um, the Visual Artists' Rights Act under the copyright law, which actually grants artists moral rights, which to really simplify it means that there are certain rights that artists keep in their art, even if they no longer own it. Um, and in some instances, the destruction of their art um, is protected against. And so this was a really sad, um, a really sad story for me because this person spent a lot of time creating this art, um, had gotten permission to, to create it and with no permission given, um, you know, was here one day and gone tomorrow. And so there's also interestingly a, a free speech claim as well, which one would expect when we're dealing with art. Um, but a very interesting story, nevertheless. Back a little. I mean, two things. I mean, number one, if he had permission from the property owner and the police did not get permission to paint over it, that's a simple, you know, that's a simple dispute. That's a property issue. And I agree that they shouldn't have done that. But listen, the police are trying to and the city is trying to get rid of graffiti. I mean, I've got graffiti, you know, on my, on my walls next door. And, you know, that might be the graffiti artist art. It might be his free expression. but his right to self-expression conflicts with my right to have a graffiti-free building, right? So there's a fine line here between self-expression and free speech and art. And in this case, I agree with you that this particular artist put up what looks like a mural, a tribute to, I guess, his, his mom or his sister, and had permission to do that. But then to take that and say the police should not, you know, cover up art or, or get rid of graffiti or clean up the city without getting permission, how would you practically do that? You know, how would you get permission from, you know, to clean up some graffiti? What if it was anti-Semitic graffiti or anti-African-American graffiti or racist graffiti? That is an well, expression I don't of think that I, I don't think that that's what's going on in this case, Rich. I think that... No, your, point was, your point was they should get permission from all graffiti artists. Well, how would well, you... Well, no, 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 no. They should get, they should have gotten permission from the property owner. It's the property but, owner who never, they never got permission from the property owner to do it. I agree with you that there's some graffiti that's just inappropriate and was unwanted and their permission and permission wasn't given. In this instance, it wasn't an issue with the graffiti artist. It's the graffiti artist that happened to have moral rights in the artistry. But first and foremost, they never even went to the tenant. They never went to the property owner to get permission to paint over it. All right, Jan, I'm going to weigh in on this. Because like I started by, by saying, yes, in this particular case, because of the permission, because it was a property owner, no question. But broadening it to, you know, more generally, should you have the right as a, an artist or a, you know, uh, someone defacing public property to have that property defaced with your graffiti and have the city say, well, it's your public expression of, of, uh, of art and we respect free speech. So have at it. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I don't know. That's, that's a tough one for me. I, I think I definitely feel for this guy personally, um, considering that graffiti, there's been this like shift with graffiti and, and we've turned it into expression where now people are getting permission 
to paint murals. I guess now they're, they're murals as opposed to graffiti. So I, I don't really know. That's tough. I, I guess I would go with, you have to get permission from the property owner and what they want, because at the end of the day, that's their property. I just think it's too bad. Cause like you said, it's a class action suit. So they're, they're suing for like is monetary damages is that it or well, presumably there are other folks that are in the same boat as this artist presumably who had also gotten permission from the property owners to paint out to, to do their murals as well but i mean the thing is it doesn't matter how much money they get that thing that work of art is gone now right mm-hmm. that's that's what's really a shame you know you wouldn't go into a museum maybe is a weird example but like but, but like you said, like it's legal, right? It was the property owner. It was, it was a building owner's property that asked for this mural to be painted. So it's really quite a shame. Moving on with uh, the news of former Trump lawyer, Alan Dershowitz and friend of the podcast suing Netflix over portrayal of the Jeffrey Epstein series, Rich. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Dersh, who is a frequent guest on our show and we could call him Dersh, right? I think we can, uh, you I'm, pretty sure he, I'm pretty sure that he told us that this was the first lawsuit he's ever filed or uh, that has been filed against him, which is, a, you know, you would think someone who's been around that long in the public eye, that's he would have been sued before. But, yeah, he's alleging that um, he was misrepresented in the Jeffrey Epstein series, Filthy Rich, on Netflix. And he's asking for $20 million uh, for four separate causes of action. Because he says that um, this idea that this allegation by Jennifer Jeffrey against him wrapping him up in the whole Jeffrey Epstein scandal, he says that portraying that as a he said, she said, is just not true. Right. And that gives too much credit and credence to her, you know, um, uh, perspective on it. And according to his allegation, according to his uh, lawsuit, and by the way, he's talked about this on Legal Faceoff. He says it's patently false and that she has admitted as such. And this is, um, you know, Netflix portraying it in this way after she's been proven to be a liar, according to him, is uh, damaging, of course, to his reputation. Tina, you love the Dersh. What do you think of this? <laughs> well, you know, Dersh has sometimes thrown us curveballs over the years. Let's just put it that way. Just when we think we know the Dersh, he throws us a curveball. That being said, I mean, he claims that he had provided them with a lot of information that was for the purpose of making sure that the Netflix show was more balanced than it ended up being. And, uh, you know, taking at face value what he said, if he did, in fact, provide that and they withheld it for purposes of trying to make it more controversial or more sensational, I side with Dersh on this. Have you mentioned damages in our earlier story? I mean... You know, let's assume Dershowitz is right. Is $20 million times four, you think, an appropriate amount of money for someone who is, I mean, Dershowitz is, I think, in his 80s. Um, is that the proper amount of damage, you think, for someone who's alleging that their reputation's been uh, violated by Netflix? Seems like a hell of a lot of money. <laughs> um, but, I mean, he came up with the figure, right? I mean... Right. How do you, I guess, putting a number on your reputation is must be an extremely difficult thing to do. I mean, when I read this story, the first thing I didn't realize, like you guys had that he was a frequent guest, right? <laughs> so you guys kind of know him a little bit. But the first thing that I thought of, and of course, I'm getting all my legal knowledge mostly from like Law and Order and TV <laughs> and stuff. But as do we, by the way. <laughs> 
have you ever had to represent like a high profile um, client who was also a lawyer? Like imagine his lawyer, like that's a, like, that's yeah no question the pressure on being Dershowitz's lawyer yeah that's the first thing I thought of I was like who's his lawyer my god this guy <laughs> of course you better hire someone good or else Dersh is going to sue you also for malpractice <laughs> Jenna what are your thoughts on this uh on this story do you know Alan Dershowitz probably not as well as we do I imagine I don't know him but I agree that sounds like an outrageous amount of money for, for what he's doing I feel like if he does win the case how does that change the way people see him yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, to that point, there is a way to quantify what you're asking for in these types of reputation cases, right? Because you can put a number, at least to some extent, on what you would earn in the full performance of your job, but for the negative impact of this publicity. So there is, you know, a whole series of defamation calculations and libel calculations that allow you to put numbers on it before a jury, um, you know. Presumably, that's what Dirsch will do, but it's a lot of money. But, you know, to your earlier point, how can you put a number on your reputation? We remember. Of, let, me, let me tell you, speaking of reputation. <laughs> uh, yeah. And speaking of dream team lawyers. That's, I mean, do you want to just take the whole thing? I'm, I'm sorry I stepped on Joe's. No, no. I, I gave you a huge window to step on. I, I thought you were waiting for me to say, speaking of dream team lawyers. <laughs> Uh, we do remember the life of 87-year-old lawyer F. Lee Bailey, who passed away. He was well known for his defense work in the O.J. Simpson trial. I will leave any more of the segues for Rich. Well, F. Lee Bailey was, I, I'm going to say, Tina, because you've already said it, so I feel like if there's any trouble we get into, it's because of you. Uh, <laughs> F. Lee Bailey gave his last interview with Legal Faceoff on this very podcast a couple of years ago. You can look it up. And uh, we talked to him about, of course, his very famous life as a lawyer. You know, a lot of people are critical of F. Lee Bailey, presumably, or, or primarily, I would say, for his role defending O.J. Simpson. Uh, he was a member of the Dream Team, as was Alan Dershowitz. Um, and, uh, you know, some folks will never forgive him for what they perceive as getting off a murder, one of the most notorious murders. But, you know... I respect F. Lee Bailey for um, just that, you know, for representing what many people thought was an unrepresentable defendant. Now, you, you might think, well, O.J. Simpson, unlimited resources. Listen, everyone has a constitutional right to uh, be represented. And F. Lee Bailey was a zealous advocate for his client, no matter what the public said. And, you know, did a good job because he got him off. In addition to O.J. Simpson, Tina, he had a slew of, uh, you know, very famous clients Back in the in the seventies, he represented uh, the Boston Strangler, uh, who was a, a suspect in the Boston Strangler murders. Uh, he represented Patty Hearst in her famous uh, trial for being involved with the Symbionese Liberation Army. Uh, famously, she you know became uh, brainwashed by her uh, her kidnappers. Uh, he also represented um, a captain who was involved in the Melee Massacre in, in Vietnam. Very famous trial. Because it was one of the first trials where the defense was, I was just following orders, right? So F. Lee Bailey, long, distinguished career. You might disagree with some of his tactics, notably in his handling of um, the, uh, what was the cop involved in the OJ case again? Uh, Mark uh, Mark Furman. Mark uh, that was his famous exchange with Furman in the trial. But uh, RIP to F. Lee Bailey, uh, Tina. So, yeah, very sad. I mean, it was, it's interesting because I had just joined Legal Faceoff um, at the time that we interviewed him back in 2017. It was in the context of OJ's parole. 
Um, and I remember just, um, you know, he, I think at the time he was living with his girlfriend above her hair salon. And I remember, um, you know, having a very cordial conversation with him on the show, Rich. Um, you know, and it's really unfortunate because obviously a very illustrious career, a very controversial career, um, you know, he ended up getting disbarred ultimately in a couple of states because of some reimbursement issues relating to one of his clients and how his client paid him. I think it was a stock situation. And so ultimately he ended up getting disbarred. Um, but definitely an illustrious career when you look back on not just the people we've interviewed on this show, but when you look back on lawyers of our generation, I mean, he's definitely the top five in terms of people who were influential and who really made, um, you know, really made an indelible print on, on high profile cases like this. Speaking of, (laughs) I thought that was Joe's cue. (laughs) That was my cue. Yeah. My apologies. Speaking I, I, of blank, blank, blank. <laughs> Speaking of dead air, uh, $3,000, that's what it'll cost you for flipping off the camera in a Zoom court hearing. Um, thank you for not flipping me off during that dead air. Uh, Rich James Heo says he wasn't flipping off his opponent. He was flipping off his computer. I don't know. That that seems like a pretty good excuse, Tina. Well, apparently, um, the, this Michigan lawyer, yes. I mean, he's lucky that he only got off with $3,000 fine because if you listen to the judge, um, who wrote in his order a few weeks ago, making the, this decision about what happens with James Heos, um, the judge seems pretty convinced that, um, it was not only an offensive gesture, but that Heos is being dishonest in what he claims to be the reason for it. So Kios is a lawyer who's, I would say, in the twilight of, the, of his career, practicing nearly 50 years. And his defense is, I've never done this before. I don't have a history of doing this. I was frustrated with my computer. Now, we all have had this frustration with our computer in these COVID times when we're in a Zoom meeting and Zoom is blippy or whatever video conferencing we're using. Um, but in this instance, he was trying to attend an appeal for a client of his that was in an appeal. He wasn't one of the attorneys that was actually arguing the case. He just was attending the hearing and was frustrated because his Zoom wasn't working and he didn't know he was on camera, he claimed. And so he flipped off his computer, not knowing or realizing he claims that he was flipping off the court. So um, in any event, I thought this was a rather entertaining story and also, I guess, a lesson for all of those people who tend to make offensive gestures or do nasty things in front of their computer. You may not want to be doing these things after some of these other cases we've seen over the last couple of months of people in their underwear or, you know, doing bad things in front of the camera, not realizing that they were in front of the camera. I mean, it's not as bad as having sex on camera like like we've seen or you know, uh, taking a, uh, traffic court call during, uh, a surgery, but yeah, general rule of thumb, of thumb, Abby and Jana is you know, your best behavior when you're talking to a judge, even if it's on zoom, maybe, you know, flipping off the bird to your computer is not the right way to go. I don't know. It, it goes with what Christina was saying before. Like we forgot how to act in the real world, but we've also forgot how to act we're all we're all learning this zoom reality well i mean you know we're in it for we've been in it for a little while now but we're 
people forget like how to act completely. They're like lost their minds. You know, I don't know. You talked about people naked there. You hear this story in Canada. I don't know if the news reached to you guys, but there was a member of parliament who was caught naked on a cabinet meeting call. And, and then he said oh, yeah. it was because he thought his camera was off and he was changing his clothes. Cause he just came back from running. So, um, you know, be careful. <laughs> Make sure you yeah. know the camera's on, and if you're on mute, that's that's the life lesson. Yeah, any uh, any Zoom uh, mistakes that you've made in the last year that you want to share with our audience? Our audience is waiting to know. <laughs> um, I don't get away too well with um, the work on top and party on bottom. Uh. <laughs> Forgetting and standing up, maybe on my Zoom calls. Fortunately for work, I don't have to be on too many Zoom calls. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, um, Tina, uh, the lesson, the takeaway here is, you know, be on your best behavior when you're talking to a judge, and you know, business on top and the bottom, maybe. You know, and and as we're as we're going back to work, that'll solve itself. Well, I got a, a special uh, a special way to end here that I want to share with our uh, viewers if Gabrielle could put it up. Or i got to share my screen, right? Gabrielle, or are you going to do that? There we go. Gabrielle sharing. All right, so what are we looking at here? This is uh, this is our high school basketball team. But so, I don't think I'm in the picture. You notice it says absent Avi Sherman. Exactly. So, uh, unfortunately, Avi is the only one who is absent. What, what were you possibly doing this day that prevented you from taking this iconic picture of the 2-11 and 11 Herzliya Huskies? Like, what? What were you doing that day? I don't know. You know, you sent me this picture like a while ago also, right? And I was trying to remember that same question. Like, what the hell happened? But you notice here for all the listeners, you notice here in the caption, you know, rich for me is Richie, right? So, um, you know, when I started to see you on Facebook, rich, I was like, oh, yeah, Richie, you know. Who's this guy? Yeah. yeah. Well, let's see if you could, uh, Joe or Tia, can you you find me in this picture? Let's see, because I... Believe it or not, I had hair at one point in my life. Can you can you spot me? Yeah, you're the bottom row five from the left, like the bottom of the picture says. Well, it's, yeah, uh, we gave it away. <laughs> you gave it away by there, but um, a couple of takeaways. So that's me. I don't know if you can see my hair, but yeah, I'm number thirty-two. I was wearing that number as a tribute to my boyhood hero, Kevin McHale. Um, another takeaway is uh, you can't see, but I'm wearing the uh, Horace Grant goggles right here. That was very, uh, you know, uh, in style back in the day. But the most important part of this whole picture is that I'm wearing Air Jordan 1.0, literally the original Air Jordans. My mother took me, I begged her to buy them for me. We went to Sears in at Carrefour Laval and I begged her for them. And they were a hundred bucks, Tina, even back in the day. And she gave in. And if you'll notice, they're the they're still like as if they're out of the box because that that corresponds to the amount of playing time I got. <laughs> you got more playing time than me. Well, apparently, I made, that's yeah. why you were absent. <laughs> but one more thing, uh, I'll tell you. This was a, a private Jewish school that we went to, and like we were an okay high school team, but literally the words "Oh no, we have to play the Jewish high school team tomorrow." Those are words that have never been by, by, said by anyone on earth. And just to give you a sense of how not intimidating we were, we had guys named Eyal, uh, a guy named Rishikov on the team, lots of Kleins and lots of Cohens and one Avi. So those are names that typically don't, you know, throw a lot of fear in the hearts of opponents. No. I, I think you guys may have won best dress, though. I mean, yeah. 
most, good, hair, good good hairstyles back in the day. Most most fashionable team. I think you guys uh, took the cake for that. Well, Herzliya Huskies forever. That's all I got to say. All right. Well, be sure to uh, find out more about the uh, Jewish basketball team on Avi's and Josh podcast at skipandjosh.com. Anywhere you can find podcasts as well. Be sure to check out uh, Gianna's Rebel Lash Salon in Lakeview. Also check out her podcast to heal the collective. Also find more about her store at therebelash.com. For Rich Lenkoff, for Tina Martini. Go! Go Habs, go! Rock the sweater! Let's go, Abby! Bring on Colorado, bring on Vegas! We have to wait a whole week now for a game. That's right. Just if things go south, don't do what Vancouver does and and just totally tear up the town. Uh, For our great producers, Gabrielle Hadley, Emily Flores, and Ben Anderson, I'm Joe Brand. We'll see you next week on Legal Faceoff, WGN Radio. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the... Hey, what's-